0: So Genesis chapter six story that we're going to talk about today is one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. I tell you a story that happened with me, true story, a few years ago when I was pastoring in Ripley, Tennessee. I was considering leaving Ripley to go to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and do a resident Ph.D. where we would move down to New Orleans and I would spend three years doing a Ph.D. study there. And I was going to do it in preaching. And the guy that was the going to coordinate for me was a guy named Jim Shattuck's and Dr. Shattuck's was a professor there. And we were communicating through email and he said, I'm going to be in Memphis and I'd love to meet you. But he said, here's the deal. What I'd love to do is to go play a round of golf and just talk as we play golf. And I was like. That's awesome, right? It's the best interview you could ever have. Go out and play golf. So we found a good place in Memphis to play golf and got paired with a guy. And it was a great experience. We played the first nine holes. The guy that was paired with us, we ended up in a gospel conversation with uh, on the green at each hole, having those conversations. We talked a lot about the school, about the program. I was very interested in it. And about the 12th green, my phone rang. This was early in the days of cell phones. I know that's hard for us to even think about these days, but it was my BlackBerry. Y'all remember those, right? Keyboard, all that, a BlackBerry. And I pulled out the phone to answer the phone, and it was one of our senior adult ladies from First Baptist Ripley. Dr. Shaddix was standing next to me. I said, I need to take this. Says, go ahead. And I picked up the phone, and before I could say anything, apparently they were in some sort of Bible study. And she just yells so where Dr. Shaddix can hear and our guests can hear, What is going on in Genesis 6? Who are these people? What are Nephilim? And I was like, excuse me, she said, we're doing Bible study, I need to know right now, what does this mean? And so I tried to give some sort of explanation on the spot, looking over an eight-foot putt, about what I was going to do. Dr. I hung up, and he said, I know all I need to know about you from that conversation. He left the seminary two weeks later. I don't know if that was the reason, (laughs) but that's why I ended up in New Orleans seminary. This passage is extremely difficult. Having a conversation last night with Susan, talking through it, trying to get some, my head around it. She asked the question I've been thinking all week. Now, why again did you think you were going to preach on this this week? Here's what one quote I found that sums it up. This is from a guy named Kenneth Matthews, and it says, Unquestionably, 6, 1 through 4, that's Genesis 6, chapter verses 1 through 4, is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. Every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. Some of you are like, I don't even know what some of those words mean. But what it means is, it's the hardest one to understand in all of Genesis, and some would argue, the entire Old Testament, or even Bible. And all God's people say, "Woo! excited about today, right? So let's look at it. Let's read it first, and then we'll talk about it. And then what I want to make sure is, we're going to talk through some of the controversies here, some of the questions here, and then what I want to make sure is, we don't miss the forest for the trees. So why is it in here? Why did God place this in here? Chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim... Where on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. That's it. Got any, got any questions? Any Any concerns there? Three main things that cause some issues for interpreters is, what is meant by the phrase, sons of God? Secondly, what does he mean by they won't live for 120 years? We'll talk about that. And thirdly, who are, as my senior adult friend asked, the Nephilim? The how are Who are they, right? And then again, we're going to answer those questions. Rephrase. We're going to talk about those questions. And then we're going to talk about why it all matters. So let's talk about it, starting there in chapter 6, verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth. Just a real quick idea for you to understand. Um, We'll talk more in a minute about the immediate context of what's happening here. But this is Genesis 6. Which means, how many chapters before this are in the Bible? Five. It's good. Y'all are good with math this morning, right? Five whole chapters. And a lot has happened in five chapters. But it's all centered around... One family. Adam and Eve and their boys. And when you get to chapter 6, it's now going to be, Oh, and let me give you a snapshot of what's happening around the rest of the world. Right? And here's a spoiler for you. It's not good. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, who is introduced in the next few verses to us? What character in the Bible that is well-known is introduced in the next few verses of chapter 6? Noah, right? Noah. So what do we associate Noah with? The flood, right? And if we talked about this before. As many nurseries that have... Cute little pictures of Noah and giraffes on the ark looking out. This was a worldwide destruction where everyone in the world died except for Noah and his family. Right? So you've got the first few verses of chapters that tell us about Adam and Eve and lots of important, lots of important. When I teach Old Testament in a a college setting, I will spend a good portion of the first two weeks on the first three chapters of Genesis because it sets the scene for the rest of the entire Bible. So you got lots of important theological stuff there, family lineage stuff in 4 and 5, and then chapter 6 is going to be this bridge that tells us how we got from where they were to the flood. And it does it in four verses. The first question that arises is, what is this sons of God mentioned at the beginning? So that's the question, right? Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, almost everyone agrees the daughters of men are females that are human. That's not hard, right? Say yes, so I know. Okay, that's not hard. All right? But the question is, what are the sons of God? And there have been three interpretations throughout history. I'm just going to tell you what they are and I'll tell you my conclusion. The first is that the sons of God are non human, godlike creatures spirits, fallen angels, demons. Well, why do they think that? First of all, everywhere else in the Old Testament, when this phrase is used, it is always talking about spirits or fallen angels or demons. That there has to be some contrast is another reason between the spirits of God, the sons of God, if you will, and the daughters of men. In most ancient literature, this was a phrase that was used to describe spiritual beings. There's even some that see a, an allusion to this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. It says that when Jesus died... He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. Now, the question then becomes okay, what are these spirits? Why are they disobedient? And then they tie it in 1 Peter chapter 3 to a very specific moment in time. The spirits who were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So if we are. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, we see that it's talking about the days of Noah and that these were the spirits that were imprisoned because of the evil they did in the days of Noah. Then you can see how some would link those two together and say that must be who is being talked about here. And here's the other reason that that is sometimes that this view is out there is because it is the oldest by far of the views, the earliest Jewish interpreters, interpreted it that these were fallen spirits, demons. Second view. Sometimes in ancient literature, the phrase sons of God or God's sons were given to kings, rulers, and leaders of a people or a nation or a group. And so they would say that there were for lack of better understanding, regular folk and then the sons of God were the kings, the rulers, family. And so some think here what is happening is that the kings, the leaders, the people that were in charge of that nation, of that group, we're not really a nation yet, this is Genesis chapter 6, this is early on in All of humanity in the history. And what is happening here is the leaders, the ones that are over, are taking advantage of those that are underneath them. And that phrase that is there, that they are able to take whatever they want. That means that they would have priority in choosing. And that may even mean other people's wives. And that what we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 6 is... That the sin that began with Adam and Eve in individuals moved to the family in Cain and Abel when Abel was slain by his brother Cain. They moved to the leadership of the people here in Genesis chapter 6 that eventually, we'll see in the verses after this, ruled to everyone that was evil. And you see the progression of sin from individual to family to group of people, nations, to the entire world. The third option is that chapter six comes immediately after chapter five. That's mind-breaking stuff there, right? Chapter five is about the line of Seth. The end of chapter four is about the line of Cain. I want to just ask you a quick question. What is Cain known for in the Bible? Killing his brother, Abel, right? He was banished from the garden he was marked for life and so there are some that see the line of Cain and there's evidence in there where the non-godly people Seth was the other son after Abel and Cain who came to Adam and Eve and would establish what we may believe is a godly line and so when you get to this verse that's the sons of God the godly line of Seth and the daughters of men the non-godly line of Cain, that that groups of people, the godly and the ungodly, began to mix and marry. And as a result, that what happened is the godly were defiled and that the people that came after increasingly were more evil. Three options. Non-human... God-like creatures, spirits, fallen angels, kings, rulers, or leaders, or Seth and Cain and their lines. And you can find people that I respect greatly, Bible teachers that I respect greatly, that believe in all three of those. And so you say, Pastor, what does you believe? What is your understanding? And here's what I'll tell you. I don't have a clue. I really don't, because I have convinced myself this week of all three of those positions. Here's what I know from Scripture, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, but it's not that there are other places in Scripture where fallen spirits, fallen angels, demons, where the spiritual world interacts with the physical world in ways that defy expectation or explanation. I know that there is throughout, the, especially the kingship of Israel, the evil of the king ends up being passed on to the people and that there are kings that take advantage of the people that were under their rule. And I do know that Scripture teaches, especially when you got to Israel and to its enemies, that marrying between the godly and the ungodly produced oftentimes not more godly lives, but less godly so when it comes to the first question about this, whether I believe these are spirits, could be. Do I think they're the king's rulers? Could be. Is it the lines of Seth and Cain? Could be. I don't know. And I think, just to be real honest, if God wanted us to exactly know everything about this, they would have written it specifically like that. And if you live in a space where you have to have everything figured out about God, I'm just going to tell you right away, it ain't going to happen. I don't want to serve a God that I can figure out. His ways or everything that happens, I don't want to live in a world that I can figure everything out and wonder and all. Second question, what does he mean by the 120 years? says it right there that the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, when you read that, the most plain way to read that is what? 120 years is how long any human will live, right? The the only concern about that being the case is there were several people after that verse was written that lived longer than 120 years. I mean, all was dead, but you can say, well, Noah's alive at this time. Noah was God's chosen. He had to carry on. But Abraham lived 175. Isaac lived 180. Jacob lived 147. And then after that, it starts to go down. There are those that talk about the patriarchs, the leaders of the faith that are there, would live a little longer to establish what needs to happen. But there's a gradual bringing back. Now, let me just say, Abraham living 175 years, that's a lot different than Methuselah that lived 900 plus years. Anybody here want to live a millennium on this earth? Imagine how bad you feel when you're 550, right? And so there's some of that. Here's the other way that it could be understood. Is that God is seeing the treachery and the evil of what's happening and he says, and this is the way it's interpreted sometimes, that 120 years is all I'm going to leave mankind left before I do something about them. There's some that interpret this to say that this is the starting of the clot to the flood. That 120 years from now is when the flood will happen. Either way, it's a limiting of life based upon the wickedness of men. Third question, and then we're going to get to actually some things for us to hold on to out of this. Third question is who are the Nephilim? Just so you know, that is how it was written in the Hebrew. There's no way that they really know how to translate that. So it is literally just kind of taking the Hebrew and writing it as you would write it in English, the Nephilim. Now, so you know the root word that it comes from means fall. So this could mean what some people interpret it as is the fallen ones or the or the evil ones, the ones that would have been understood to have an ungodly influence, or perhaps even ungodly strength and ungodly abilities. The Nephilim are mentioned one other time in Scripture. You might know what book they're mentioned in. Good. I would have been shocked. That's great. Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. Anybody know what's happening in Numbers chapter 13? Good. All right. Numbers chapter 13. Spies are going into the land to see if it was ready for them to take over. Do you remember the 12 spies go? Ten of them come back. Do you know, ten of them report. What do they report? There are Nephilim in the land. Giants. So whatever they saw were huge. Now we also have in scripture this giant that is Goliath. And not only to people that were, uh, we, we've talked about this before, but through just the way things happened, the Israelites in that time frame would have been much shorter individuals than we think of normal individuals. Like their normal height in that day. Most people think for men around David's time, normal height would have been four and a half to five feet. Okay? And so for them, you think like seven foot guys, a giant. But Goliath, we know, was over nine feet, according to scripture. And so there were people walking around. There are these ancient kind of... Um, heroes that are there. And as these ancient heroes are there, scripture and that's where they came from is this intertwining of the sons of God, whoever they are, and the daughters of men and all the evil that came out of it. So what are the Nephilim? I don't know. That's a good way to start a sermon, right? With three things I don't know about. But what's important for us to ask is, okay, so why is this here? Do you remember what we said last week about the bears mauling the kids? That you cannot fully understand the text without understanding the context. And here's what we have in this passage is... That it finds itself right in the middle, as I mentioned. All that that happens in chapters 1 through 5, the first family, sin entering into the world, God creating the world, sin entering the world, sin causing problems that will be felt even into our day, and then God declaring that he was going to do something about it. Then we have the lines there. You have this part, and then you have the flood where the entire world is destroyed. So what do we learn from this passage in the midst of that context? The first thing that we learn from this passage, and I want us to to think about this for a minute and understand it, we live in a world far more mysterious than we can think or imagine. We live in a time frame when we think we can figure everything out. That we can study everything to death and get it figured out. We live in a world where we're trying to predict what might happen in the future and go ahead and prepare ourselves for what might happen then because we want to control everything about the world in which we live. And one of the things the Bible opens our minds to and even this passage that I don't understand much of it at all reminds us of is that we live in a world that is inhabited not only by the reality of the physical world but in some way, in some fashion there is a spiritual world that is interacting with us in the physical that we cannot explain. That the spiritual world is real and it interacts with us. Ephesians chapter 6, this isn't just a weird Old Testament concept, Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with spirits and principalities and powers, that there is a real spiritual war going on around us. And most of us would rather, if we're honest, live our lives with an easy, physical, scientific explanation for everything. And there just are some areas of our lives that that does not exist. And we like to think that God is in heaven and he's going to take care of us and all that's great and he'll give us some blessing. But most of the time we talk about blessing, God's going to bless us. We think of material things he's going to give us. Physical realities. And it's like we want to separate those two. And God is up there and he's just kind of like Amazon shipping us stuff down here. And we forget that there is somewhere in the middle where all that kind of comes together. A few years ago, um, a guy, a researcher named Hebert described this as the excluded middle. Where we believe in a spiritual world that exists up there, and we live in a physical world down here. But we like to imagine that those two don't ever collide in the middle. And that, as he said, as American Christians, we have excluded that middle where the spirit and the physical meet and interact. One of my PhD papers, I called it the Scooby-Doo Syndrome. Y'all remember Scooby-Doo, right? Scooby-Doo's still around, but I'm talking about the good Scooby-Doo. I'm talking like Harlem Globetrotters, Batman, Scooby Doo cartoons. Like y'all, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. Just seeing if your hands work today. Yeah, all of us do. What happened at the end of Scooby Doo? There was some mysterious, scary thing happening. Ghosts flying everywhere, things going on. What always happened at the end of Scooby Doo? They pull the mask off and there was some human explanation for the spiritual thing going on. Most of us want to live in a Scooby-Doo world where we can find a a physical explanation for everything that might be spiritual in our lives. And the reality is that there is a mysterious world in which we live in, in which they always interact. And even if it is a physical explanation, the way we respond and the way we live out what is happening in our lives is determined by our In touchness, the way that we are in touch with the spiritual world around us. And sometimes we just have so much happen that we have to say there has to be a different explanation for this. Anybody ever had one of those weeks? Those months? A few weeks ago we got home from um, somewhere. We'd been out all day, work. School, we got home, and Ava went to get some water out of the refrigerator and said, Dad, there's a big puddle in front of our refrigerator. Told you some of this. Oh, we cleaned it up. Everything's fine. Luke goes downstairs. Dad, why is there water all over my room? Luke's room is right under the refrigerator. Apparently been leaking all day. Walls destroyed. Carpet destroyed. Wood flooring destroyed. All that. That was fun, right? We're still in the process of getting all that figured out. And so well, that's, that's a big hit. That's fine. Last Friday, uh, Eli was home for fall break, drove his car home. He had been in Jackson the whole time. He was concerned about his car. We were driving around a little bit, getting ready to go get tags. The check engine light came on. And we know that you can't get emissions testing. Don't we all love emissions testing? Praise be to God that ends in January. Um, we, we can't do that, so I called I, I, uh, call Jim Whitfield. say, said, hey, man, I've, I'd like for you to look at this real quick, see what's going on. He goes, bring it on by. And um, as we, we drive it on Vietnam vets to to use the words of someone in this room that saw us driving, Ben York said that he has never seen so much smoke coming out of a car before. <laughs> um, and I've got a picture of what that ended up being. So there's that's how Eli's car ended up last Friday and still in that position. So okay, we've got we got you know a room that we can't be used and hardwood flooring that has to be replaced. That's all great. We got a car that's up on the wrecker. Awesome. And then this week um, on um, middle of the week, I'm driving to pick up the kids. I park at Beach Elementary School right up there in the midst of everybody, put the car in park, uh, go in and get the kids, come back out, get Luke, come back out, put the car in reverse. They won't go into reverse. And so we have this picture from our car of this week. So So that's just so you know, that's within five days that is happening. Susan said that if we have if our traverse goes down, we're looking for who's sabotaging our cars, right? Like something's going on. Now, here's the thing. All of them had reasons to break. But in the midst of that, we have to remind ourselves that there is spiritual reality going on that we have to ask ourselves. How am I responding to this situation? How am I living this out? Now, luckily, I drove this to church today. It was an easy, quick fix. The other one's still at the shop right now. We're figuring all those things out, but how we respond, how we live our lives, how we move forward with it in those moments, we must realize we live in a mysterious world that we don't have an explanation for everything. Second thing this passage teaches us, and this is important, mankind left on its own will always spiral out of control. That's the whole point of the first four verses of this passage is that man was out of control. Whatever the sons of God and the daughters of men, whatever the Nephilim are, whatever's going on with God's decree about the 120 years, the point of it all is here's the line of Cain, here's the line of Seth, and oh, by the way, the world is wasting away and has completely filled with sin. How do we know that? Well, if you've got your Bibles open, and this won't be on the screen, but look at verse 5. So immediately after the Nephilim, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. That's a loaded phrase, isn't it? Left on our own, he says, when I saw what had happened, it wasn't just the Cain and Abel, it wasn't just Adam and Eve, it had spread to all humanity. And when God saw that the wickedness was widespread on earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time... God knew something had to be done because man left to its own devices will spiral out of control. That includes us individually. Our lives lived without an understanding of a following of God's plan, an understanding of God's plan, a willingness to hear from God and be in relationship with God, that without God's influence in our lives, we on our own will spiral out of control. And it may not happen in a year or five years. By the way, this period of time, we don't know how long the period of time is between creation and this. Most biblical scholars call Genesis 1 through 11, prehistory, that doesn't mean anything that it wasn't true or anything. It just means that it's before we have time frame on it. So you know how many years it was from Adam and Eve and Cain. And you can trace all those things and try to build all that. But there's some overlap there, some figuring all that out. And what we do know is that however long it took, that when we got through with Cain and Abel and Seth, that by the time we get to Noah, the world is wicked. I think about the book of Judges. We've talked about many times the idea that H1 did what was right in his own eye. And if you watch that, it is a cycle of depravity that continually is to spiral downward. And this is the message of the Bible. Left to our own devices, we will spiral out of control. The third thing we see in this passage is that God must punish wickedness. Verse 6, we're going to talk just for a moment about a word in there too. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals and creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Now the word regret there is not how we think of regret. He's just saying that this has gone farther away than I can allow to Keep going. This did not keep God. I mean, they not take God by surprise that this happened. He's just saying at this point, it has become that the people have become too wicked to allow it to continue. We're going to restart. God always must punish wickedness. Even in describing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the book of Romans, it says that when God could no longer look over the sins of the people, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. In fact, just to be honest with you, the four points, we have one more point to make, of what happens here in Genesis 6, 1 through 8 really, are really the overview of the Bible. We live in a world that's more mysterious than we can think or imagine. Man left to his own devices will spiral into a place of wickedness. God must punish the wickedness. Kind of sounds like the gospel presentation in a different way, right? God created us to be in a relationship with him. There is a world that we do not understand that exists around us. You and I have chosen to walk away from the Lord and to do things that he told us not to do or not to do things he did. And as a result we have begun the process of declining and devolving into wickedness and an enemy of God, and God must punish that wickedness. But here's the last thing, and then we're done. God always provides a way. Verse 8 is one of the greatest verses in Scripture. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Some versions have, but Noah, and it's Echoing of the numerous times throughout Scripture when it says, This is how you were, but God. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord because in this moment, God is going to choose Noah and his family to build an ark to sustain themselves in the midst of this, to protect the wildlife. He's going to bring two by two. We know that whole story, right? But it is a way that is provided for us even though we don't deserve it at all. And so when you think about the gospel presentation, God must punish our wickedness, and He did in Christ Jesus. And provides us a way, the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And if we will but trust in Him, He will save us and protect us, And change us into the people that God intends for us to be. Our wickedness will be replaced with his righteousness. And so while I may not understand the details of what sons of God means or what the decree of 120 years was exactly and who the Nephilim are and what they look like, those are questions I can reserve to ask God in heaven. And I can only reserve to ask those to God in heaven because he is a God that even though he sees my sin, he sent his son to die for me. And I may not understand all of those things, but I understand the story here because it reminds us that man was in a desperate situation and that God was going to provide a way to bring back a salvation to people. Because our God always provides a way. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're in the midst of a terrible week or month or year. life. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never accepted that sacrifice that he made on the cross. We're going to talk about that more next week. It's Lord's Supper week. And we're going to finish our series with an interesting thing, actually story, strange encounter from the New Testament. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Here's what I'll tell you. Without Christ, there is no hope. He is our only hope. And for you today may be the day of salvation. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. Charlotte is going to come and lead us. Tom and Bob are going to come. And we're going to sing as we spend time reflecting on and thinking about the Lord. And asking Him to show us those things in our lives that need to be transformed. For those of us that are believers in this room... We continually ask, the Lord, to show us those things. We preach the gospel to ourselves often. Where in my life have I gone my own path? Have I gone my own way and have turned to wickedness? And, Lord, how can I be saved from that sanctified, changed? For those of you there in the room that have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, today can be the day that changes your life forever. People make that claim, but that is true when it comes to salvation so today, as we spend time, after I pray in response, I'm just going to ask you to respond however the Lord leads you. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have just to know that you are a God who cares for us, who loves us unconditionally. And Lord, even when you have to punish wickedness, Lord, you chose in this case to save Noah and his family to continue the line. But also, Lord, you chose for us sacrifice your son so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would continually be reminded of your goodness and greatness in our lives. I pray if there's one here today that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, that today would be the day and that they would be willing to say, now is the time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.